0: Section one hundred fourteen of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. The World's Story, Volume Ten England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section one hundred and fourteen how a welshman became king of england 1485 by owen roscomel toward the end of the fifteenth century richard III succeeded in usurping the throne of england his tyranny and crimes by which he had accomplished his object so aroused the english people that they invited henry tudor a descendant of john of gaunt and also of owen tudor a welsh gentleman who had married the widow of henry V, to become their sovereign he landed at Milford in 1485, and was soon engaged in a fierce battle with Richard at Bosworth. Henry was successful, and was crowned on the battlefield as Henry the Seventh. the editor. Cloudily down the morning of that Monday, August 22, 1485, when Henry Tudor drew out the host of his gallant countrymen for the battle that was to close a thousand years of struggle, it was to close more, it was to close the medieval period of British history, and to open the modern day, the day of our own empire. Richard III, king that morning, drew out his host from its tents at Sutton, and saw, two miles to his left front, the host of Henry, king that night. To his right front, on Hanging Hill at Nethercoton, he saw the host of Sir William Stanley, the men of northeast Camry, On his immediate right lay lord stanley's men he sent to order lord stanley to join him but lord stanley would not come then richard measured what he had to do his army was nearly equal in numbers to all the other three combined it was far better equipped and armored moreover it was composed for the most part of veteran troops there were no sweepings of jails and hospitals with him like the men that henry had brought from france the ground too was all in Richard's favour. In front of him ran out the long tongue of Anbion Hill. Round it on the north and west lay a long winding marsh between him and the other armies. That marsh could only be crossed at Stanaford, where the ancient trackway which he had followed from Stapleton ran on down from Anbion Hill to Shenton and Henry's camp therefore he would take up a position at the end of the ridge of Ambion hill overlooking Santaford crossing and there wait henry's coming richard was one of the best generals of his day but if he were to march straight off to do it then lord stanley yonder on his right might swing round the head of the marsh and attack him from behind just when the others attacked him in the front that would mean certain defeat therefore he commanded the earl of northumberland Whose men were as many as Lord Stanley's to stand fast where he was and keep Lord Stanley off. Then, with his eight thousand and more of veterans, he set forward along the ridge of Ambian Hill. Henry Tudor, as he drew out his men from the camp at Whitmore, could look across the marsh and see the plain of Redmore beyond it, swelling up into the crest of Ambian Hill. On that crest, he could see the front of Richard's army one wide wave of glittering steel ranging into position he saw what richard intended he knew that he himself must cross the marsh and attack ambien hill every disadvantage was with henry his own men including the worthless foreigners were not nearly so many as richard's he had sent for lord stanley and lord stanley had refused to come to him but he still trusted sir william stanley for sir william's men were henry he knew that the marsh could only be crossed at sandiford the ancient trackway from his camp led to that crossing and onward to richard's position the track would lead him the right way then the marsh would protect his right flank while he marched to sandiford and there when he turned the head of the column to the right to cross the little stream the troops of sir william stanley would be but a mile or so away behind him on hanging hill then sir william could follow him on over the crossing and join him in the attack it was the only plan now and he marched to carry it out when he came to sandiford he led the way across the marsh to array his men on redmoor beyond still no stanley came but it was ten o'clock and the battle must be fought stanley or no stanley above him rose the steel crowned crest of Ambion and the harvest sun shone dazzlingly into the eyes of his archers as they faced the slope behind them was the wide marsh to cut them off from retreat or flight if they were beaten they were few and the foes were many they were on the low ground and the foe with his cannon was on the high ground to attack now would be boldness indeed but they were bold hearts they attacked when the order was given to prepare lord says the old chronicler how hastily the soldiers buckled on their helms how quickly the archers bent their bows and flushed the feathers of their arrows how readily the billmen shook their bills and proved their staves ready to approach and join when the terrible trumpet should sound the blast to victory or death the chronicler used the right word there it was a case of victory or death to the leaders for henry was striking for the crown that meant life and safety to him the exiles were striking for the home that was the only place in the world for them the Kimry were striking in the fire of a pride that nothing could kill well might richard feel haunted he looked at all the Kimric banners arranged against him and he called for a bowl of burgundy and turned to his squire reest vitan here vitan he cried i drink to thee the truest welshman that ever i found in wales and with the words he drank the wine threw the bowl behind him and gave the word for the onset his van was stretched from the marsh on the right to the marsh on the left a very terrible company to them that should see them afar off says the chronicler in the centre were the archers and on either hand of them two wings of men-at-arms covered with steel from top to toe behind them on the hill were richard and his main body with the cannon Henry's van was thin because his men were fewer, but they were enough. The trumpet blew, the soldiers shouted, the king's archers let fly their arrows. But Henry's bowmen stood not still, they paid them back again. Then the terrible shot once over, the armies came to hand strokes, and the matter was dealt with blades. Henry's tactics were all boldness, he still felt that Sir William Stanley's men must come in for they were kimbry too unlike lord stanley's therefore he pressed the fight on richard's left till his van had outflanked it by this movement he could face the slope now with the sun at his back while it shone in the faces of richard's men dazzling their eyes in turn by this movement too he got richard's army between him and sir william stanley so that it would be taken in front and rear when stanley charged a thing that would mean complete disaster for Richard. Richard saw that, and with his cavalry swung round to come on Henry's right flank and rear. But there was another green spread of marsh, where now wave bean Woods, and it was too soft. His good white horse stuck fast. Shouting for another horse, he mounted again, and led the thundering charge straight at Henry's flank. But Earl Jasper was watching— he had the main body of Henry's men under him, the men of Old de Hayboth, and with the gallant Earl of Oxford continued the fight in the van against the Duke of Norfolk. Jasper faced his men to meet the desperate Richard, and beat back his furious onset. Thus, in a ray triangle, the fight raged on. Keenly Henry watched the fight. Now or never was the moment. Where was Will Stanley with his Kimry? In his anxiety he rode back, attended only by his bodyguard and standard-bearer, towards Sandiford, to where he could see if Will Stanley was coming, and as he drew rein to look, one of Richard's men saw him, and sped away with the news to his master. Richard was pausing for a drink from the spring, which is to this day called King Richard's Well, when the word was brought to him. He saw at once that he still had one last desperate chance. If he could reach and kill Henry— then the victory would be his, seeing that there would be no one left for Henry's men to fight for. He seized the chance. "'Let all true knights follow me!' he shouted, and spurred away over the hill to where he should find Henry. Fast poured the flower of Richard's knights after him, while Henry's bodyguard saw the onset coming and closed its ranks to defend him. Richard marked the great standard that Sir William Brandon bore and he charged upon it like a demon he unhorsed huge sir john Cheney, who tried to bar his way he slew the standard bearer and laid a hand upon the standard itself but giant reese of Mereded, of nant conwy seized it from him and drove him back a breath while henry himself met him with a fury that astonished friend and foe richard raged like a madman but it was all too late now sir william's men were here at last richard ap howell of Moston, with the rest and the best king richard was borne back fighting like ten men yet still borne back his horse fell his lords and knights were dead or dying fast around him still he raged on then came dark reese ap thomas seeking the king who had once threatened him and tradition tells how the blade of dark reese ended the life of the last norman king Richard the fall of richard was the end of the battle too for all his men fled at that northumberland laid down his arms there was no more to fight for lord stanley whose troops had never struck a blow hurried over to henry whose men were following the flight of the vanquished but all was not done yet the long fierce dream of the stubborn timry were to be fulfilled to the very letter they had come into england to win the crown of britain back for one of the old blood of its founder they did it in very deed for when the chase was ended the crown of dead king richard was found in a hawthorn bush and lord stanley lifted it and placed it on the head of henry thus was the long dream fulfilled the crown of britain was come back to the descendant of its founder at last and the wild shout of triumph with which the victors hailed their countryman king is remembered to this day in the name of the field in which they stood and watched him crowned its name means the field of the shout you may still see the stone whereon that crowning took place it is in stoke golding and the spot is still called crown hill in memory of the only time that ever a king of england was crowned on the field of battle lost in battle that crown had come back in battle did the bones of all the slain generations of the kimry who had struggled for this day stir in their red graves at that shout surely their spirits knew when the work was done at last surely a sound like the moving of a mighty wind must have swept over kimry for the ghost of all the heroes slain in the battles of the thousand years of struggle could leave their graves at last and go to god the long work done the victory won the nunc dimittis chanted o'er the mountains as they passed end of section one hundred fourteen this recording is in the public domain